Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue exploring scriptures that deal with the term, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are comparing and contrasting seven sets of key prophetic terms that I believe we need to have a good grasp, a good understanding of before we move into the um, 30 uh, chronologically sequenced events or prophetic events that the Bible tells us must take place between now and eternity, which, of course, we find at the end of the book of Revelation. So I, I want to cover 30 prophetic events, but as I was preparing that program, I uh, this actually a teaching series, uh, I found that there were some terms that if we did not have a good understanding of, we would miss uh, some real meat, if you will, uh, in the passages that we'll be using. So we're going to be um, continuing on here. We're actually starting to finish up point number one. Point number one in our worksheet is comparing and contrasting the terms the Son of God and the Son of Man. And, of course, um, we're talking about Jesus Christ, and he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man because in the sense that he came down to this earth, God came down to this earth and took on the form of human man in carnal flesh. So in that sense, he's the Son of Man. And a lot of your teachings that you hear out there today will not go really any further than that to make that comparison and really not much of a contrast. But I believe that there is a significant importance in understanding the contrast between the use of the term the Son of God and the use of the term the Son of Man when talking about Jesus and again, if you've been with us for a while, you should uh, understand that, have a, a good understanding of that, that the Son of God is one who comes to believers, who comes to the righteous, and he brings rewards, and he brings um, grace, goodness, uh, righteousness to us, a, uh, a hope of eternity, and actually a revelation of eternity to us, because it's the Son of God who will come to rapture the church, for instance. And when you use the term the Son of Man, it's used to convey the point that Jesus is coming to judge. And it's referring to either him as the judge, or it's a term that is used to unbelievers to tell them that in the future, as we see in our scriptures, we'll be going over here in point number one under the Son of Man whenever the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other unbelievers are addressed and are warned about their future if they do not accept Jesus Christ, uh, the term the Son of Man is used because it will be a impending judgment upon them. 
So that's the concern that I have, that we understand the difference between those two. And it's not simply to uh, just use the phrase, oh, it's Jesus. He's both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Yes, he is. But it's so much deeper than that. And, and it's not an esoteric, hard-to-understand difference. It's, a, I think, fairly simple and um, I want to go over one more verse with you uh, in today's program before we get into John chapter 5. And I believe John chapter 5 was given to us as kind of a template or a um, um, instructions, if you will, about understanding the clearly understanding the difference between the use of the Son of God and Son of Man. It's all wrapped up in a matter of uh, five, six, seven verses. But I wanted to go back uh, in our program today because we had started out looking specifically at the Son of Man, having spent quite a bit of time looking at the Son of God. And we went to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, is talking to Israel about their future and giving them hope, as God always does, always gives us hope, even in the midst of adversity and tribulation, there's always hope. And he told the uh, Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, that he is a loving God, and he, he brings his loving kindness to a thousand, thousand generations, meaning forever, for eternity, to those who love him and obey him. But then we went to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, verse 10, and it shows the other side of, of God. And it's a God that says he... he hates those who um, disobey him. He hates those who will not uh, have faith in him as the creator God. And it says he will bring punishment quickly to their face. So it's a rather rough, if you will, rough statement uh, that a lot of people really do not have an understanding of because they haven't heard it taught is that, as we've said several times, God is a just and loving God but just as importantly and just as equally, God is a just God. God is a just God, and he will bring punishment. And it's not a surprise. He, he has told the Israelites for thousands of years, and through his good grace, which is the, he's giving us his, his completed word, the Bible, we, you and I, have no excuse for not knowing what God's uh, impending uh, but assured punishment uh, is for those who do not believe. So no man will have an excuse on the day of judgment. So we went to a Deuteronomy 7, as we just uh, very quickly reviewed, and then we went to another uh, prophet, another prophet like Moses, and that was Nahum, and it's one of those that's a very short book in the um, collection of minor prophets, and again, they're called minor prophets found at the end of the Old Testament because they're short, not because they're minor in any import. They're very important. And if you go into there, uh, go in there and you find, um, let's say, uh, Ezekiel, then you'll find Daniel, and then you'll start the minor prophets with Hoshea or Hosea and move in there. And if you'll find Jonah and then Micah, and right after Micah is the short book of Nahum. A hundred or so years before Nahum prophesied, you had Jonah, who God sent to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And of course, it was the Assyrians that came down and took the ten 
northern Jewish tribes captive, uh, having ultimately done so, I think it was 722 B.C. So a little over 100 years after that, we now have Nahum prophesying again to Assyria just before they are finally uh, conquered by the Babylonians. And he makes a very strong statement here. And interestingly enough, when you read this statement and then you understand in the Hebrew, Hebrew words have meanings. Names have meanings in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, Nahum means comforter. (laughs) It's comforter. And when you look at it in the context of what he's prophesying here, um, the Israelites can take comfort in this because when we go to Nahum, and I pray that you found that in your Bible so far by now, and uh, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So if you're a uh, Jewish person and you're reading this, you're thinking, well, that's my God. My God will defend me because he is an avenging, a wrathful God. But at the same time, it also tells us that God is just that. He uh, is summed up. His justice is summed up in those um, descriptive terms that we find there. And Nahum uses several of them there. So God is a just God, and he will take uh, he will require recompense, repayment, and he will bring justice to those who go against him. So these are two Old Testament, you know, they're anywhere from uh, 3,400 years ago with Deuteronomy to, what, uh, 2,500, 2,600 years ago with Nahum. So let's bring it up a little bit closer to us, which would only still be 2,000 years ago because we're going into the New Testament to the book of Matthew. But if you would, uh, thumb to the right in your Bible and go to the first of the books in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, and go to the book of Matthew. And Matthew does a good job of describing the um, loving kindness, the grace side of Jesus, the Son of God side. And at the same time, in these short few passages here in Matthew 3, he also describes the justice judgment side of the Son of Man. So if you would, let's start with verse 10, verse 10 of Matthew chapter 3 and begin reading. It says, the axe, this is, by the way, this is John the Baptist talking to the people. John the Baptist talking to the people. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. In other words, judgment is coming. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So already in verse 10, before we get into the meat of this, you can already see that John the Baptist is setting the stage for judgment. Judgment to those who do not bear good fruit. And of course, those who bear good fruit do that by the leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So if the Holy Spirit is not in your life, then you are not of God. Therefore, you are against God. You are of the night. You are of the darkness. You are of Satan. 
There's either one side or the other. There's no gray areas in the Bible. You're either of Jesus and God on the light uh, and the day, or you are of the night, of the darkness, and you are of Satan. So it says that if you don't bear good fruit, that tree that's not bearing the good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, verse 11 of Matthew 3. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, referring to Jesus, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, referring to Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So you see that John is using the water aspect of it, the physical aspect of it, as a clear symbol. And we're taught um, the water baptism as a symbol of our salvation. It doesn't save us, but it's a symbol, uh, a recognition for others to see. It's not for, you know, baptism is not for your benefit. The baptism is for other like-minded believers to see that you are, you are wanting them to see and understand your profession, that you have believed Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior by submitting to the water baptism. But he's saying that doesn't save you. What saves you is the baptism of the, of, in the Holy Spirit by Christ. And again, this is a spiritual renewal, a new creation in you. This in no way, and I'm in no way suggesting that there are physical uh, uh, visual or auditory verbal things that change in you. In other words, I'm not talking about strange noises and things like that. I'm talking about an internal spiritual change that takes place in your life when the Spirit of the living God comes into you, which is the promise that was given to us by Jesus. When he left, he said, I would not leave you as orphans, but I will send you the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is believe in me, and you will receive the Holy Spirit who will be with you forever. So that's the baptism when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He brings uh, a desire. Let me put it that way. He brings a desire into your life. He wants to lead you into an understanding of all the scriptures. And that's, of course, in John, the book of John. And he's also your guarantee of the full salvation. Remember, you're not fully saved until your body has been transformed. You become sinless, and you stand in front of Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. That is the point of full salvation. You were saved at some at one point. That's justification. You are being saved through sanctification as you grow more and more Christ-like, and then you are fully saved at glorification, when you see Jesus Christ face-to-face in your glorified body. So that's the, the result of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the other point, so that's the, the gift, if you will, of the Son of, Man, uh, Son of God, the, the uh, gift of the Son of God. Now look at the other side, the Son of Man, because it says he will baptize you with fire. And already we've been given a hint back up in verse 10 He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then we're told in verse 11 that Jesus, when he baptizes, it'll either be with the Holy Spirit 
or fire. And then he clarifies what he means by fire in verse 12. His, Jesus, winnowing fork is in his hand, in Jesus' hand, meaning judgment, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. That's the judgment. And he will gather his wheat, that's you and me, into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you can see the wheat and the chaff. You can see the Son of God, the Son of Man, that the wheat will be rewarded, stored and rewarded. In other words, we are his possession, but the chaff is burned up with an unquenchable fire. And that's a reference. This is not a one-time fire where the chaff is just burned up and goes um, uh, just goes up into smoke, if you will. What he's talking about here is the lake of fire, the unquenchable fire, it's called, where you will be living eternally in an unquenchable, tormented state, which is, is basically the separation from the living God. So it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to even think about. But that is the just side of God. That is the just side of of the Son of Man, the just side of Jesus. So hopefully you can see the the two here. You've got baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is the wheat that's taken into the barn, the baptism of fire, where he judges you, and basically you are referred to as chaff, and that you will be um, swept into the unquenchable fire, which means an eternity in torment. So we're given it as clearly as I think you can and be given something of the difference between a loving son of God and a justice uh, imparting son of man. So we're going to go into um, John chapter 5 in our uh, next program because I want to spend some time there as we did uh, earlier a number of programs ago when we were introducing the various aspects in the scripture uh, detailing the Son of God. We want to do the same thing for the Son of Man, only this time we want to emphasize the Son of Man part of it in John chapter 5. And then as you see on your worksheet, we'll go through a number of scriptures to build on that and let the scriptures show us what God would have us know through the leading of the Holy Spirit and the writing of these authors in the New Testament, what he would have us know about understanding the Son of Man and what his role is going to be compared with and contrasted with the role of the Son of God. So again, we'll do that in our next program. But as we always do, we want to go over now to our question and answer uh, portion. And we have been uh, dealing with in um, a many, many series on the role of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and particularly the role of the Holy Spirit as we're going forward here in the tribulation, which is what uh, evoked the question from um, from Rich in Indian Springs when he was asking about the restrainer of evil in Second Thessalonians chapter two, who is the Holy Spirit. And from reading Second Thessalonians chapter two, it's clear that the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is taken out of the way, taken off the earth. Uh, in order for the Antichrist to be revealed and to begin the seven-year tribulation, all of which has yet to happen. 
And Rich's question, his concern is, is if the Holy Spirit, which indwells the church, is taken out of the way, in other words, the church is raptured off the earth, is there going to be a Holy Spirit here on the earth to uh, bring about the salvation of the tribulation saints because they clearly are saved as uh, listed, as he says, as he points out in his, his question in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And we've spent a, a number of Q&A portions of programs going over the role of the triune Godhead in uh, the Bible, uh, the role of God at the beginning and at the end uh, where he can he deals with man in man's sinless state because he cannot be in the presence of sin. So he's there at the very beginning of Genesis with Adam and Eve, and he's there at the very end um, in what we call eternity when there is no sin because it tells us that Hades and death or sin has been thrown into the lake of fire. So he once again dwells with man. But in the interim, uh, for 6,000 years, getting ready to start the 7,000-year period, which I believe will be the millennial kingdom, we've seen um, the pre-incarnate second part of the triune Godhead, which is Jesus Christ. We've seen the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. And we went through a number of scriptures there to show the role of the angel of the Lord, and that's the pre-incarnate Christ. And for instance, when we were in Genesis 18, we showed that the pre-incarnate Christ referred to as the Lord, um, as well as the angel of the Lord, along with two angels that came with him. So they were described as initially as three men. So we see that. Then we see uh, we went through Jesus coming in the flesh uh, 2,000 years ago for his short ministry on the earth. And then when he left, the Holy Spirit uh, is working primarily through the church uh, as the restrainer of evil. And then there's going to be a point in time when the church is taken out of the way. And the church is taken out of the way at the rapture of the church. And so uh, if the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, which we're told the Holy Spirit definitely does, and we went to John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells each member of the church forever. Uh, but that church will be raptured out so that the uh, Antichrist can be revealed. So when the, the church is raptured out, um, every person on the earth at that point in time, right after the rapture, is going to be unrighteous. Because remember, if they were righteous, if anyone was righteous, they would have gone in the rapture. So there's no righteous person on the earth. So we went over how God, in his gracious love, uh, reintroduces the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, he brings back, he reintroduces the opportunity to come to know his son, who is going to come back as the conquering king, to be uh, king of kings and lord of lords, and that's due, uh, due to a reoffering of the gospel of the kingdom, which starts at the beginning of the tribulation. So we went through talking about the um, two witnesses in uh, Revelation chapter 11. Then we went through uh, the 144,000 uh, Jewish males, pure Jewish males that are um, brought to faith somehow, uh, maybe through the two witnesses, through the, basically through the miracle of God. We're not told specifically, but they are described in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 
And those are 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are probably spread all over the world, which is where they are right now in what's called the diaspora of the Jewish people, the, the dispersion. So Israel's going to be witnessed to by the two witnesses during the first half of the tribulation. And the uh, rest of the world, the Gentiles, um, as well as Jews living in the world, will be witnessed to by these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 males from each of the 12 tribes. That's where they come from. Uh, so they're going to be the primarily primary um, um, promoters, if you will, of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus is going to come again and, and reoffer the kingdom to Israel. And, of course, we know they're going to accept it at that point. So then we uh, started talking about the Holy Spirit in the tribulation and talking about how the Holy Spirit will function in the tribulation as he did during the Old Testament. During the Old Testament, he would come on people at the direction of God the Father, and then he would leave people if they became unrighteous. So if they became righteous, they would receive the Holy Spirit uh, to dwell with them, not permanently in them. Remember, that was only for the church, and the church is gone once the tribulation starts. Then, of course, the church did not exist in the Old Testament. It started at Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had gone back to heaven. So we went through some scriptures in the Old Testament to prove the point from the scripture that the Holy Spirit would come on people and would then leave people. And we went through Samuel with Saul and David, and uh, David again in Psalm chapter 15. And then we were showing how um, God brought the Holy Spirit on certain artisans to give them the uh, godlike skills to do the fine work of building the tabernacle. And that's where we finished last time. And now we want to go to Numbers 11, which on your work uh, would be um, the, um, the next scripture. And again, that's in the book, uh, in the Pentateuch, the five books that. Uh, Moses wrote. So if we were in Exodus, then you'd go to Leviticus, and then the next book after Leviticus is Numbers. And we want to go to Numbers chapter 11 and see how the Holy Spirit uh, was brought on the 70 uh, elders, if you will. And the 70 elders was a really a initial format for how the Sanhedrin are set up. The Sanhedrin uh, are in existence again today, and we can talk about that sometime. But they uh, were disbanded in the 4th century, and they came back together in 2005. And there, are a total, there would be a total of 70 men of great spiritual insight, and then a 71st one. And here it was Moses was the 71st one. And in Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, it says, The Lord said, therefore, to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And then it says um, down in um, 17, Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him, the Spirit, upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. So we see the Holy Spirit coming on these people, and we'll expand on that particular point and go forward in our next Q 
Q&A portion in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.